Take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 30. Look at a text that, for most people, when they think of the Psalms, this is one of those texts that they think of. The title of the sermon is, Joy Comes in the Morning. Now we use that phrase, I just want to warn you, we've probably all at some time used that phrase incorrectly. We use it almost like a, a wish, a, a hopeful statement, like, well, I know the rain's falling right now, brother, but the sun's coming up. Kind of a country way to say the same thing, right? Or we might say something like, uh, go to our friend, our neighbor's home. It's, it's been a particularly rough time in their life, a rough patch. They don't necessarily believe in Christ. We've never seen any fruit in their life from the gospel. But they've had some particular hardship, whatever that may be. And we stand in their, you know, in their presence and we say, you know, I just want you to know, it's going to get better. Hard times on the other side of hard times always is good times. That's kind of a pagan spin on what the psalmist is saying. What I'm going to say today relates directly to and only to the saved. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'm not trying to offend you, but I want to tell you up front, the things I'm saying are off limits to you at this moment. And they're designed to make you want the Savior. Because there's no hope in your life. And there's no joy coming in the morning for you. As Jason said, if you continue down the path of your destruction, only bad comes for you. We take these little phrases often, not only in the Psalms, but I think the Psalms were guilty of it as much as any book. But we take them, we pluck them from the page of Scripture, and we use them like proof texts in our life to make us feel better about our situation, and that's not God's design. So let's look at this text together. We have here several contrasts. There are four large sections in this psalm, four large main sections, and each of them is a contrast. And inside of each big contrast, there are small contrasts, so much so that there are 12 contrasts. The psalmist says one thing, and then he contrasts it against the opposite. Okay, but there are four large ones here that will help us put some meat and some direction to this as we look at it. This psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's kind of like a, psalm, a hymn or a psalm of, of praise. It's similar to that. It's also very close. All of the psalms of thanksgiving follow a psalm of, of lament or repentance. And so <clears throat> uh, they follow along the same kind of theme because typically what the psalmist is thankful for is God's deliverance. And so it's easy to miss the category, and I don't think it's all that important, but it is a psalm, I believe, of thanksgiving. David is writing to us, and it says it's at the dedication, if you have uh, an ESV at least, it says it's the dedication of a temple. We're not certain of that. What, what that word Hebrew in the Hebrew means is house. So is there some question about what dedication this was read at? Was it a prayer at the dedication of the palace? Was it a prayer at the dedication of the temple? We don't know. We know uh, that it was the dedication of a house. Let's read the psalm together, and I'll break it down as I read it into these four sections. First of all, we read the first section. God delivers us from sickness to health. 
the context here is a physical sickness, not a spiritual sickness. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have heard, healed me. You have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. The contrast here, sickness and health. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, God answers. God's answer is anger, excuse me. God's anger is momentary, but His favor is eternal. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, notice the context, and give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor, or His mercy, is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. It's our second contrast. The anger of God is for a moment for His children, and His mercy is forevermore. Third section. Verses 6 through 10, God is our sustainer. God is our sustainer, not the works of our hands. The works of our hands don't sustain us. The prosperity we gain from the works of our hands don't sustain us. God sustains us. Look at verse 6. As for me, I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, <coughs> you made my mountain Stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry and to the Lord I plead for mercy. He sinned. And now he's asking God's mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. God is his sustainer. Finally, the last contrast, verses 11 and 12, is that God turns our mourning into celebration. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. We're not particularly... Uh, Absolutely, let me say this, certain of the context, the external context, the historical setting for this psalm. But I do think it, it's helpful for us to remember an event in David's life. I think that fits this psalm the best. And I want to read it to you, uh, this event. First Corinthians, I mean First Chronicles, excuse me. First Chronicles. You can take your Bible and turn there. Holy Place Psalm 30. We're coming back. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Nearing the end of David's life. His empire, his kingdom is at its peak. He's at his natural strength. Verse 1, then Satan incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. If anybody knows anything about the history of Israel, God had clearly told them, Your strength is not in your numbers. 
Your strength is not in your external success. Your power is not in your army. Horses and chariots are not your savior. Swords and slings and spears and tactical genius will not deliver you. I will deliver you. He did it so much so that in the law he said, don't count them. There's no need to know how many soldiers you have. Don't, don't number them. Trust me. And David, incited by Satan, goes the opposite direction. He numbers them. And Joab says, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord the King, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and, the Benjamin, and Benjamin in the numbering. For the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemy overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. What? For his mercy is very great. The anger of the Lord is for a moment, but his mercy is forever. I believe the historical setting for our psalm is this very event. What we find here is that David chooses the third option. The pestilence and the death angel comes on Israel. And from Beersheba to Dan, 70,000 are killed. 70,000 are destroyed. And then the angel comes up to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw. And the Lord relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan 
the Jebusite. So David went up to Gad's uh, went up to Gad's word at Gad's word, and uh, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it. And let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornon, No, but I will buy them from you at full price. I will not take for the lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornon 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into his sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and there here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. I think because of that evidence, it's my opinion that the temple is is in sight in this psalm. And that what God is doing is setting up the place where He will build His house, His earthly house, for His people to come and worship Him. Psalm 30 is therefore a very, very meaningful text to the people of Israel and was treated with high regard all their history. Let's look at it as it applies to us. We see the, I, what I believe to be the historical context. David's sin has brought the people into a plague of death. 70,000 people dead. And we see here that God is the only one who can deliver in the first chapter. I will extol you, O Lord, or praise you, or exclaim your name, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice. The word here, draw me up, is like a bucket being dropped into a well and being drawn up full of water. What David is saying is, is God is the deliverer. God is the one who will miraculously save me. God is the one who will prevent my enemies from having power over me. I believe it's this that he chose the last option. He didn't choose the three years of famine. He didn't choose the destruction of the people by the hand of their enemy. But God drew him up, saved him, spared him, even through the plague. The physical plague that took 70,000 is a sparing of God. It's a, it's a lesser punishment than is deserved. God's mercy is being extolled in the salvation of the sick and bringing them back to health. God is the one who is doing the work here. Look at verse 2. Oh Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O oh Lord, you have brought me up, my soul, from Sheol, from the edge of the pit. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit or to the grave. 
Here the sickness, the plague is in sight and the people are suffering and it looks like they will all die. I mean, can you imagine if reports began to come in, 70,000 are now dead. When does this end? You get in mind historical plagues like plagues in uh, the Black Plague in Europe or the Spanish influenza in the 1920s. Can you imagine? It's hard for us to imagine in modern medicine a plague that begins to move out through the land and there's no remedy. People are dying left and right, literally next door neighbors dropping dead. Can you imagine? It's hard for us to imagine. We talk that way about cancer. We talk that way about HIV. We talk about these diseases. But I want to say something that I think God has really laid on my heart and convicted me of this week. When we think of cancer, or when we think of HIV, where is it that we put our hope? In physical sickness, where is it that we put our hope? Is it in God? Or is it in a cure? Is it in God? Or is it in the miracle of modern medicine? Medicine is not a miracle. It's a blessing. I'm thankful for it. But listen to me clearly. As true as it was in Psalm 30 verses 1 through 3, it is true today. The only one who spares in sickness is God. The only one who delivers in a time of plague is God. The only hope you have is God. This week, Aaron and I rode over. We spent a little time with Chuck. He's sitting in a chair there, tubes everywhere, just having had a very extensive and evasive surgery. It was interesting as we were there that all the talk was about medicine for a time, and yet when Chuck's nurse came in, it was a very small comment that she made that made me remember, God is our deliverer, God is our healer. She, we were talking to her, we were kind of joking her about Chuck, and we said, is he being a good patient? And she said, oh, he's a great patient. And then she said, kind of as a byword, she just kind of was leaving the room, she said, he's been praying for all of us. She left the room. In that moment, in the face of modern medicine, it was reminded to me, modern medicine is not the key to our healings. Christ is. God delivers us, nothing else. Some of us this morning need to repent. I've had to this week. That we really believe, like David, that our strength is in our numbers. That our strength is in our physical abilities to rationalize and find cures. Don't hear me saying those things are bad. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if your ultimate hope is in those things, they will fail you. There will come a day when God calls you home that He will not use medicine in any way to relieve your suffering. And you will die. If your hope is in that medicine, your hope will die with the lack of ability of medicine to heal you. But if your hope is in God, at the moment medicine can't help you, His help is enough. David, looking at the sword of the Lord with the angel, isn't pleading anything except God's mercy. 
And it's God's mercy that he receives. So first we see in this contrast that our hope, our prayer, and our trust is in God who heals. Not any other source of healing. Second, we see that God's anger is momentary, but His favor is eternal. If we look at verses 4 and 5, remembering against our, what I think is our historical context, God is angry at David. Wouldn't you say? 70,000 dead. The, sword, the flaming sword of the Lord over the city of Israel, of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Wouldn't you say God is angry? But his anger is momentary against his people. Look at the context of verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord. What? O you his saints. Thus my introduction. This sermon speaks hope to the saint. It doesn't speak to the lost man. His anger is momentary. His judgment is momentary. His affliction is momentary. His discipline is momentary. But His mercy, His favor is forever. It is eternal. It is a lifetime. It is life is another way we could say that. His favor is life. Then we get our phrase that we pluck out. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If you are a believer... Life will not be easy. Life will not be often comforting. The situations you face will look like those of your neighbor who's outside the gospel. You will suffer the same sicknesses that they suffer. You will suffer the same financial struggle that they suffer. You will suffer the same persecution often at work or hard times or conflict that they suffer. Marriage is still a struggle. Children are still a struggle. And yet, at the bottom of all of that is a momentary feeling because life is in your hope in Christ, which is eternal. It's a hope they don't have. This verse is specifically for the saints. I think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who in Lamentations gives us a verse much like this where he says his mercies are new every morning. And some of you have suffered in such ways that you know that to be the case. You have suffered and you have found that at the end of the day you're ready to give in and there is no hope and I can't survive and if another day like this I can't make it. And you go to bed Pleading with God for help. And you wake with new fresh hope. With new mercy for this new day. We are being cast back into the picture of the physical provision of God in the, for His saints in the wilderness. As we think about the coming of manna. When did it come? Every morning. What was it for? For one day's provision. Except on the Sabbath, they gathered for two days. There was never any lack and there was never any leftover. There was enough for this day. So God, in this psalm, is teaching us, I am the healer, nothing else. God is saying to His people, my anger is short. My discipline is short. But my life is eternal. It is new. Every morning it is new. Weeping is in the night, and it tarries for a short time, but joy comes in the morning. God is third seen as our sustainer. 
Against our prosperity, God is the one who sustains us. The power of our lives is not found in our, in our ability to amass wealth or to find success, but rather is found in God. As for me, I said in my prosperity, and prosperity it was, over 1.5 million soldiers. It was a mighty army at this point. This is not the little tribal people that came out of Egypt or went into Egypt, the clan of family, come out a tribe of people. This is a well-oiled fighting machine. 1.5 million swords in the sheaths for protection. This doesn't count the women. This doesn't count the children. This doesn't count those below the age of fighting. Just the fighting men. This doesn't count the aged and decrepit, unable to fight, retired, just to fight. The men that would fight. I said in that prosperity, I shall never be moved. All is well. The mountain of the Lord, the city of Jerusalem, the stronghold of my house is forever. But then God, notice in verse 7, hid his face and David goes from utter confidence to total dismay. Satan incited him to count his army and then God withdrew his favor. And a million point five soldiers and swords brings no comfort to David's soul. God's anger though is only for a moment. God's discipline is only for a day. But his life is eternal. Because at the moment of dismay, David turns to God. Look at the very next verse. In verse 7, we see that he turns, in verse, in verse 8, he turns to the Lord and cries out and pleads with Him for mercy. What good will it do, God, if you allow my, my body to go into the dust what good will it do if the nations of the world see you as unfaithful? Because they knew that, God, that the Israelites believed that God would sustain them. So if God lets them die, all of them die, what good will it do? Who will tell of your faithfulness? Hear our cry, Lord, and be merciful and help us. Repentance. Calling on God. Throwing ourselves at His mercy. Leads to our mourning turned to joy and celebration. At the end of the prayer, we have the return. The th what he's thankful for is that God turns to him and his mourning and his sackcloth is loosened and he begins to celebrate and dance before the Lord. His joy returns. He sings of God's glory. He praises and will not be silent because the Lord is now His deliverer, and He will give thanks forever. Historically, we could turn to many places for pictures of this very thing. I just want to use two as we close, and maybe we'll speak to our hearts. Many of you know uh, the name William Cooper. Some of you don't. William Cooper was one of the great hymn writers of the faith. 
his pastor encouraged him because of his depression to write hymns. And he did successfully. Over 800 hymns in the only hymns collection belonged to William Cooper. We sing many of them. God moves in a mysterious way. There is a fountain filled with blood. Still to this day, we sing his hymns. Those hymns come from a lifetime of depression. Now, when I say depression, I don't mean melancholy like some of us experience where he felt bad for a little while and then he feels okay again. I mean deep and dark and clinical, what we might call clinical depression. He sat for days in darkness. He sat and stared out at the church house from his window in his depression. And though his heart, as he would say, wanted to go and gather with God's people, he could not. His mind wouldn't let him. He was so depressed. John Newton would visit him in the, his pastor who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton came many times to minister to him. And one of the psalms he used was Psalm 30. This is the picture I want to get through to you today. When I say that weeping lasts for a night and joy comes in the morning, don't hear that as a literal 24-hour period of time. How long did William Cooper's darkness and suffering last? A lifetime. He died in depression. He had moments of deliverance where he rose above the suffering, the mental anguish, the depressing thoughts, and he would write and he would join the people at worship and he would seem to come through great improvement, but he always went back into depression. He died in depression. Now, what kind of depression do I mean? I mean the deepest depression imaginable. He often said, or he did say, he wrote one time, I believe that God sovereignly elects his people. And I am not one of them. That's dark. That's broken. And yet I tell you when he died, when he crossed the river of death because of who Christ is, his sackcloth and ashes were turned to joy. And he was freed from the torment of his mind. And his joy is everlasting. We have those 800 hymns because he suffered. We have his books of poetry because he suffered. We have in him an example that we should always go to. Another historical figure, and there are so many that we could go to, is a young man named David Brainerd. Brainerd said his favorite psalm was Psalm 30. Brainerd was one of the most intelligent men of his day. He gave himself to the Native American. And he gave himself to the Native American. When I say that, that sounds like he had this, you know, maybe this good life. He went into the wilderness and he suffered <clears throat> from some of the most terrible of diseases. He had constant lung trouble. So much that he would feel like he was suffocating to death. And the only thing he knew to do was to go in. It was so cold, he would go into his tent, and he had a fire. And so all this smoke filled the tent, which made his lung issues that much worse. One time, Jonathan Edwards, who ministered to him, went out 
to him in his tent. He knew he was suffering, and he'd gone to him. And he threw back the door of the tent, and he said to him, Are you alive? He said, Yes. Are you in need? He said, Only physically. For my joy is coming in the morning. You see, this truth is not meant to be used as some superstitious well-wish. This truth is meant to plant in our hearts and give resolve in the day of our suffering as His children. This truth is not meant to give hope to you as a lost person. It should give the opposite to you. Because I can say this. I could turn it the other way. For the lost who are with us, your joy is but for one night and your suffering is for a lifetime. This is not some well wish. This is not some hallmark postcard. This is God's comfort for His people. If you're suffering, hold on to Him in faith. Cling to Him in faith. Your joy comes in the morning. And it may last this entire earthly life. You may struggle until your last breath. But then He will loose your sackcloth and you will dance with joy in His presence forever. There is only hope in Him. And so as we close, I just ask that you would think with me for just a moment. Where are you? How is this with you? Are you in Christ and suffering? Some of you I know are suffering. Some of you are suffering physically. There we have, we have people that have ongoing sickness, cancer, recovering from joint replacements. And we have people who are suffering financially. Some of you as businessmen and women are going through the very most difficult days of your lives in those endeavors. And you have no way to know if you will survive in that business. We have those in our congregation whose marriages are at the brink. Unless God draws you up, you have no hope. We have those among us whose children still to this day live in rebellion against the gospel that you have tried your best to live and teach to them. And you're in anguish in your soul, in your heart, in your mind. We have those who suffer through depression. Listen, Grace Fellowship has not spared any of these things. So my challenge to you as God's people is to really assess where is your hope? Where is it placed? And an encouragement to know that it's, if it's in Him, you have eternity of payoff coming. Secondly, the application of this sermon is if you don't know Him, the opposite is true for you. You may be experiencing the best of health, the greatest of marriages, the most loving and gentle children, 
and the most prosperous times in your business. But it's only for a moment. Eternity for you at this moment contains nothing but suffering. The converse of this verse is just as true. Paul said it this way about the believer in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are confident in 2 Corinthians 4. We are confident that these momentary light afflictions are laying up for us a great weight of glory. The opposite is also true. Lost man, these momentary and light pleasures are storing up for you on the day of judgment a wrath that is eternal. So the application to your life is, what will it be? A moment of pleasure and an eternity of suffering? Or a moment of suffering and an eternity of joy and pleasure? I'm calling you as believers, keep your hope in Christ. Trust Him even in the darkest days. And as lost men and women and children, come to Him before it is too late. For if you tarry and the door closes, you will suffer on the outside of that city forever where there is weeping and the gnashing of teeth.